Hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, Waypoint Church. Happy 2021. Now that we are in the new year, I can say that hindsight really is 2020. Yes. I'll show you people get that. Can you believe that 2020 is finally over? I mean, it's crazy. It's been an odd year to say the least, but one thing never changes. God. He is always good, always faithful, always sovereign. His love over us never fails and never changes. And as a church, um, we're going to be in a series in the next few months in the books of Matthew and Isaiah, kind of this combined book series, looking at both these books together. And it's, a, it's a series that the pastors and elders are so excited about. Our prayer is that as we spend this time in the next few months in this series, that you'll see the, again and appreciate all over again the beautiful story of God's plan of salvation in a new and wonderful way. We love that these books go fit so perfectly together. Some people call Isaiah the fifth gospel. It's this beautiful Old Testament book, and Matthew in particular, out of the New Testament gospels, one that draws upon the most Old Testament imagery. So these books work so well together. And as you guys know, as Waypoint Church, we believe in the whole council of scripture. We're not an Old Testament church. We're not a New Testament church. We're a whole Bible church. And we want to just dive into the whole council of scripture together. Today, we find ourselves in the wilderness with Jesus. And he's being tempted by Satan. And before we dive into it, I want to draw your attention to a number of things to look for and things to kind of bear in mind as you listen to this message today. First of all, one thing I just want to say kind of in passing, but I don't want you to miss. I'm going to say it at the beginning. Is, isn't it striking that as you read this passage, Jesus answers each temptation from Satan with Scripture. I mean, if ever there was someone who had the right to answer Satan with his own words, his own logic... You know, his own reasoning, it was Jesus. But he takes Satan to the Bible, and he answers Satan by the Bible. 
I think that's one of the things that we should learn from his example. If Jesus takes Satan to the Bible and rebuking him, then maybe we should do the same and have the Bible as our only rule of life and faith for ourselves. But the, thing, the other thing I want you to notice is also this, is that what's playing out in Matthew 4 is a parallel to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Eve and Adam are tempted by the evil one, the devil, Satan in the form of a talking serpent. And they're tempted in a beautiful, pristine garden. It's a perfect world in which there is no sin in humanity, and yet this fallen angel in the guise of a talking serpent comes to tempt Eve and Adam. But in contrast, Matthew is painting us a very different picture, a different location for Jesus' temptation. He's not in a beautiful, pristine garden. He's in the wilderness. And that in and of itself provides us a very graphic contrast between the unfallen world of Adam and the fallen world in which our Savior lived. This temptation is a temptation, in other words, of the second Adam. Paul puts it this way, for through one man's disobedience, all died. So also through one man's act of obedience, all are made alive. That is, we, are all, we all in Adam all die, yet all those who are in Jesus Christ, however, are made alive. So what we're seeing here is a contrast between Genesis 3 and Matthew 4. The temptation of the first Adam, a temptation which he failed and plunged all of human beings into a state of sin and misery. And the temptation of the second Adam, which he passed and opened the doorway of life to all those who trust him. So it's not a garden, but a wilderness that this temptation takes place in. It's a picture of our fallen world, the world that happened after the temptation of the first Adam. And notice also there's other contrast between these temptations. Adam is tempted once and sins, and three curses follow. Jesus is tempted not once, not twice, but three times, and passes every test, and God's blessings flow. Jesus, in contrast to Adam, lived in a fallen world without sinning. Adam lived in a sinless world, and by his sinful actions filled it with sin. So there's beautiful, amazing contrast between the temptation in the garden and the temptation in the wilderness that I want you guys to, to see and notice first off as we look through this passage. And we're not going to go into much more detail, but I want you to notice those two elements first, that this is a passage where we see Jesus combating temptation with Scripture, but also I want you to see that beautiful connection between Genesis chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4 as we dive into this story. Now here's the deal. Here's the one thing I want you not to get. Most people, when they hear this passage of temptations of Jesus, they say, this is how you fight sin. This is all a very practical sermon on how you should battle sin. And don't get me wrong, that's there. You know, this is, that teaches us, that's one of the byproducts of what happened here is that we do get to learn some lessons on how to battle sin. But more importantly, I want you to notice more importantly, what is Jesus accomplishing through this encounter with Satan? Okay? In the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we're told that the name of Jesus will be Emmanuel, God with us. That name becomes one of the major themes for the rest of Matthew's gospel. God is with us in Jesus. And even at the end of the book, at the end of Matthew, Jesus ascends into heaven. But what does he assure us with? He says, I will be with you to the end of the age. God is with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And the story of the temptation of Jesus needs to be understood in the light of that overarching theme. Jesus is being tempted by Satan to sever his relationship with God. It's no longer, um, it's about no longer being with God, about no longer being Emmanuel, God with us. The Satan's temptation is for Jesus to strike out on his own, to do it all by himself. All the temptations are really about that, about not being with God anymore. It's not really about bread. It's not really about dramatically being rescued when you fall off the tower. It's not really about owning all the kingdoms. 
It's about subtracting God from the whole equation. It's about going at it alone. My friends, have you not felt this basic temptation in your own life as well? Our biggest problem is not the various little sins and issues we all get into. We all have our faults. We all have our problems. We all have our little hang-ups or issues. That's not usually what kills us. What kills us is that we are fighting with an urge inside us that says, why don't you go it alone? We don't need God. Just kind of forget about God. You're powerful all by yourself. You're all you need. All you have to do is look inside. Who really needs God? It's not just saying often that you just need God. It's often more subtle than that. It's the statement that you possess all you need, that you can even be God. Adam and Eve were not having a problem with the apple. Or the fruit. I, I say apple. Well, that's not an apple. The fruit. See, it was not the fruit that did them in. It was a little voice inside that said, you can be like God. What was the temptation that Satan said to them? Was it the fruit's going to taste so good? It's going to change your life. Man, that fruit is going to be so delicious. You're going to taste it. You're going to be like, ooh, ecstasy forever. No, he says, you can have what God has. You can be like God. You don't need to settle for just being with God. You can get ahead. You can claim your own throne. God's in your way. Get him out of the way. You can receive the glory. And for Jesus, too, this is not about bread or temple pinnacles or kingdoms. It's about stopping the Emmanuel process, about launching the alone. His temptation, what, what Satan was trying to tempt him with, is said, you don't need God. Do it yourself. And is that our temptation as well? My people, please understand that sin starts off with a denial of God and placing of yourself or someone else on the throne of your life. That's why the Ten Commandments start with idol worship. The temptation of idol worship for us isn't a desire necessarily, for most of us I would say, to place a statue or a golden calf and say, there, that's God, let's worship that. That's not typically our temptation in America, is it? That's not typically the thing that I have to be like, hey, most of my people at Waypoint don't do that. I don't typically have to say that. But what we do have to say is what we do is we have this desire to want control, to dictate, to say my way, my life, my soul, my, my, my rules, whatever I want. Our idol worship is more often for us is that we place ourselves on the throne. And God forbid, if anything happens where we don't get our way, we get angry. Because we think we deserve it all. We think we're God. Or we think, well, I can just work hard and do enough and do well enough and I can control my life and as long as I can control my little life I don't need to be God of the universe as long as I'm God of me and God of my home God of my little sphere and what God is saying is that is idol worship that is the great temptation that is the sin that we need to fight against because you're made for dependency and you're made for relationship this is the temptation that Adam faced and failed in which Jesus faced and conquered I mean, we learn how to approach this temptation from how Jesus responded. But most importantly, this passage is not about how we can face temptations like Jesus. It's a wonderful benefit from this passage, but that's not the main point. The early readers of Matthew would have seen the significance of this passage. You see, this passage in Matthew 4 starts off by saying that Jesus was led by the Spirit to the wilderness, and there he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. The early readers would have immediately thought of the Israelites in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. That's where their mind would have immediately have gone. And even if they didn't, even if for some reason they're like, I don't get it, what's going on? Jesus' quotation of scriptures would have immediately turned them there. You see, this encounter with the devil is another replay. Not just the Adam one. This is another sequel. Just as Jesus stands at the threshold of the new heavens and the new earth, the nation of Israel had once stood at the brink of entering into the promised land. Moses says to the nation in Deuteronomy 8.3, He humbled you, 
causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Wait a minute, where did we hear, just hear that? Didn't Jesus just quote that? But this is from Deuteronomy chapter 8 where the, the Israelites are entering in. And they were, just facing, they were facing the very same temptation that Jesus did. They did not trust God. Jesus quotes this. Israel was hungry before entering Canaan. Jesus was hungry before unleashing the new renewed cosmos. And what they learned, he learned. What Moses says to them, Jesus repeats to Satan. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is with us with the most vulnerable moments of our history. There where we were most hungry, he got hungry too. There where we thought we would never get into the promised land, he sided with us. He entered into that place with us. There where we thought that was all was a hopeless case, we needed to somehow learn to trust in every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And there's moments that you're hungry and you feel all is hopeless. The moments that you see the task seems too big. Know that Jesus intentionally entered into those places. He says, I'm Emmanuel. God with us. Now if Jesus would to obey Satan, God no longer would be with us because God would no longer be with Jesus and the means of God to be with us would not have, understood, would not have happened. Jesus faces this first temptation, a repeat of how Israel failed in the wilderness. See, here's what Israel did. Remember when the manna came, what did they do? They were supposed to say, okay, leave the leftover manna because God will provide every single day with new manna. But what did they do? Do you guys remember? Anybody remember? See how many of you guys know this stuff. If you're at home, you can go and speak out loud too. Impress your, impress your family members if you know. They hoarded it. They stored it up. Why? Because they didn't trust that there's going to be enough. This is provision. This is trust and provision. This is that dependency. This is that relationship. This is doing it without God. Let me hoard it up. Let me trust. Or let me not trust. And Jesus faces temptation, a repeat of how Israel failed to trust in God for provision, Jesus trusted God for provision. Israel failed, Jesus did not. That's temptation number one. Temptation number two, throw yourself down from the temple. Well, so Satan hears Jesus' response. Jesus says he trusts God for provision. So Satan is very subtle, he's very sneaky. He moves on to his second temptation. So you trust God, do you? Okay, well you trust God. You're going to commit yourself to God. I get it. God will take care of you. I get that. God can do it all. That's right, huh? Okay. Well, then here's my next move. Here comes the second temptation. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Herod had a royal portico on the southern wall of the temple mount. One corner, the southeast corner of that which overlooked the Kedron Valley, was 450 feet in height. A dizzy height, as Josephus actually says it was. And if you're standing on the corner of the top of Herod's portico on the top of Mount, you'll be looking straight down, a straight cliff vertical drop of 450 feet. And, by the way, the tradition says James, uh, the brother of Jesus, was thrown off that height. That's how he was, actually he was killed. And so what Satan is saying, saying, so you trust God, do you? Okay, I see that you trust God. You, you fast the first temptation that's not trusting God, going out on your own. So you trust God. So then, well, let's prove that you trust God. Let's put your messiahship, your trust to the test, right? Why not do something that will force God to save you, huh? Don't, I mean, just, I mean, you're humble, right? So that's why you don't, you're not going to do this yourself. So let's give God the glory, right? Because if God saves you, see, this is a good idea. 
Make God do something big because you trust God. Let him receive all the glory. Doesn't it say that the angels for his written, and here's the devil quote in scripture, by the way, which is super sneaky. Right, the devil quotes scripture. It says, Psalm 91, he'll give his angels charge concerning you. In the hand they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So he says, the devil's like, Jesus, I, I know. That's what scripture says. The angels are going to protect you. They're not going to let you get crushed. They're not going to let your whole body get destroyed. So go ahead. You say you trust God. Let, let, let God prove it. Let God show himself to be mighty. Let God prove himself to you. Throw yourself off this cliff. Perform a miracle that only God can do. Now, that's so subtle, isn't it? I mean, is this even worse because this, this, it's, it's a sin that's presuming on God. This is a sin of testing God. In the first apparel really existed. He was really hungry. The first sin, Jesus was really hungry. The hunger was real. But here, the temptation, what the devil is saying is, create apparel, then presume on God to deliver him from it. But it's sneaky because it doesn't at first appear that way. It at first appears to be, well, this, you're just quoting scripture, right? You're just holding on to promises, right? You just, well, maybe you want God to receive the glory. You're just trusting God, right? And this, the psalmist actually says here that there's a prayer that psalmist prays, is, Lord, keep me from presumptuous sin. Those things that get into that, I get into that, get so deep that I presume you're going to get me out of there. It's basically that prayer is saying, God, keep me from making stupid, bad, sinful decisions over and over again, just assuming that you're going to get me out of it again. You know, it's like that person who has a friendship and has a relationship with a friend, basically, who just takes you for granted over and over again and says, well, I'm just going to keep on making bad mistakes because I know you're going to bail me out again. It's that rich, spoiled kid who just says, oh, daddy's money will get me out again. The psalmist actually prays that prayer, knowing that God is, is a wealthy, extravagant, loving father. But he says this prayer, the psalmist says, keep me from presumptuous sin. I love Jesus' response. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I mean, think about it this way. This would make a cool sign, wouldn't it? I mean, taking a swine dog off the corner of this temple, you know, in front of everybody, going, woo! And all of a sudden, angels going, whoosh! That'd be a cool sign in front of everybody. They'd be like, I am the Messiah. I mean, that could be like a cool moment, wouldn't it? It makes sense. This sign makes sense. You can say, do you see? Do you believe it now? I told you this is going to happen. But you know, there actually, during that time period, several false messiahs who actually tried this out. They had very brief careers. One named Theodos led the people out, and he said he's going to prove he was the messiah by splitting the waters of the Jordan River. It didn't happen, and he was done. There was another one, famous Egyptian pretender. He's noted actually in Acts 21, 38. And he promised with one word that he would lay flat all the walls of Jerusalem. And it's so interesting that these false messiahs attempted these feats because it's clear that he can't succeed and that they're in fact false. Simon Magus was one who actually tried to fly through the air unsuccessfully and he ended his life. He tried to actually do what the devil tried to get Jesus to do. He actually died. Now, these pretenders all thought that they were able to do some astounding magic, some incredible feat that the public would accept them. And why wouldn't Jesus want that, right? I mean, so many times people came to him, they demanded a sign, demanded a sign. Jesus, show us a sign, do a miracle, be a performing magician for us. He always, he often just turned them down, he rejected it, and he didn't do it, what they asked him to do. Why? Because he came not for popularity, he came to be rejected. He came to be hated and despised and killed. Isaiah 53 says he came as a suffering servant. 
He came to be mistreated. He came to be hated. He came to die. And if all of a sudden the whole populace saw him do this astounding miracle, where if he jumped off the top of the building, if he had, like I always joke about, if his miracles were like a dragon coming across the sky, written in big letters in every language, so we can see that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, and smoke, dragon, fireworks, missiles, then they'd be like, no, those miracles would make more sense. But that's not what he did. Because he had to be pierced for our transgressions. He had to be crushed for our iniquities. He had to be chastened for our well-being. He had to be scourged for our healing. He had to be oppressed and afflicted. He had to be a lamb led to the slaughter. He had to be oppressed and taken in judgment. He had to be cut off in the land of the living. Isaiah 53 says, It pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. It pleased the Lord for Jesus to die. The Son of Man comes not to be mistreated but, onto, but to minister to give his life a ransom for many. And had he fallen to the temptation that he would not have been the Messiah that we needed. He would not have been the Messiah that God set him to be. The suffering one, the suffering servant. He would have lovers, he would have had lovers of sensation and not lovers of God. He had people who wanted to follow him for his power, not one who wanted to come to him in repentance and seek his forgiveness. He had a taste of that in John 6 when he fed the multitude on one side of Galilee. The next morning he was on the other side. They all came back and said, he said to them, you seek me because I've performed a miracle of food. You don't use God's power to test God. There's no sense in seeing how far you can go with God. There's no sense in putting yourself deliberately in threatening situations, doing it recklessly and needlessly, and then expecting God to rescue you from it. God expects his own, especially his son, to take risks in being true to him, but he doesn't expect him to take risks in order to enhance his own prestige. He, Jesus refused to wave sensation. It was a way to failure, not the way to true success. He refused to collect a crowd of thrill seekers. He wanted a crowd of repentant sinners. He will trust the Father. He will not presume on him. He was so humiliated in that wilderness, 40 days with nothing to eat, absolutely all alone, weary, hungry, dirty, tired. He looks like anything but a king, but he will not distrust his father, and he will not take the road of sensation over his road of suffering. It is written, Jesus replies, do not put the Lord your God to the chest. Where was it written? Well, let's go back right away to back to Deuteronomy. And as you're standing there at the lip of the promised land, Moses says to the nation, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is verbatim harking back to where that all have been. It's deja vu once again. He's the second test, the second temptation that the Israelites failed. The nation here in Deuteronomy is at a turning point. The people are in do or die moments, but the Israelites fail again. They put God to the test out of selfish motivations. Numbers 14, 21 and 22 says this. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. The Israelites tested him. They kept on testing him over and over again. They demanded more signs, demanded, oh, it wasn't enough that you split the Red Sea. Remember when they came to the Red Sea? What did they say? They saw the ten plagues. They saw God deliver them out of Egypt. But they get to the sea and they said, oh, what are we going to do? Did you just bring us out here so the Egyptians can kill us here? We should have saved us the trip. Seriously? Are you putting the God to test again? Oh, what happens when they get out to the wilderness? Did you come out here so we can starve? At least we had food as we were slaves in Egypt. Again. Israelites failed. They kept on putting God to the test. They wanted more sensation. More sensation. But here's what Jesus did doesn't fail. 
He doesn't presume, but he chooses to walk the path of suffering. He doesn't fail the test that the Israelites failed. He fulfills. That was temptation number two. Temptation number three, nations and kingdoms can be yours, just worship me, is what Satan said. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. There's nothing subtle about this one, right? The last one was very subtle. Jump off the, I mean, you know, put God to the test, all that kind of stuff. It was subtle, but all subtleties are gone now. Satan's desperate. He takes him to a high mountain, gives him a view of all the world's kingdom. Egypt with its magnificent pyramids and wonderful buildings and treasures, Greece, Greece and Athens and Corinth and all their splendor, Rome and all that they have. And he says, all these things, all these kingdoms, I'll give you if you fall down and worship me. And you can say, why is that a temptation? Let me tell you why that's a temptation. Because in the end, Jesus has a right to all of it. Why is that a temptation? Because he deserves it all. He's worthy of it all. He deserves every one of those kingdoms. He deserves every need to bow down and every need to worship him. He deserves it all. So it's a temptation because he deserves it. He has a right to it. Psalm 2.8 says this, Ask of me and I'll give you, give, uh, give you the heavens as your inheritance and the outermost parts of the earth for your possession. That's the best I promise from God to the Messiah. I'm just offering you what God offers you is what Satan's doing here. He's saying, literally saying, God, I'm just offering you what you already deserve. You deserve it, right? It's really yours, but tell you what, I'll give it to you without the cross. Right? This is what Satan's offer is. I'm going to give you what you deserve, but you don't have to suffer for it. You don't have to take upon yourself as a sin offering. You don't have to offer yourselves as a sacrifice. You don't have to be the lamb in my story. I'll give you everything you deserve. You deserve it. Why suffer for these people? And by the way, that's what the devil says to us all the time, right? Go ahead, compromise. You deserve great things, right? He deserves, you deserve wonderful things because you're, you're made in the image of God. You know, you're a son and daughter of the king. You deserve all the blessings and all the flow, everything that flows out of blessings, right? You deserve it, so, but you don't have to suffer for it. Let's just go with my route, compromise a little bit. Go get what you want. Don't listen to God. Worship me. And what an idea, like you're thinking worship Satan. Who would worship Satan? Because right? none of you guys are like, I'm tempted to worship Satan, I hope. Uh, most of you guys are probably not like, I'm tempted to. Because when you, I think of Satan worshipers, what do you think of in this day and age? You think of cults and weird rituals. So you're like, most of you guys are like, that's just weird people. We're not worshiping Satan. Can I tell you something? Newsflash, this might sound harsh, but I'm going to say it anyway. When you disobey, when you fall into sin, you're worshiping Satan. I know that sounds harsh, and I'm just going to be real with you, is when you place things as more value than righteousness, when you place the idea of, of, of yourself as God is higher than God placing, then you're worshiping something, and all hearts all worship something, and if it's not worshiping God, then it's, you're worshiping Satan. And so when you choose to sin, that's what you're doing, is you place something higher than God in your heart and your life. And I say that, guys, this is, please don't hear me saying that to you as in like, that's what you're doing. Please hear me saying this to you, is that when I come face to face with my own sin, I realize, man, wow, that's what's happening. Satan is offering Jesus sovereignty over the nations without the cross. 
how often am I tempted for this exact same thing? Obviously, I'm not tempted for sovereignty over the nations. There's nothing in me that, well, that'd be kind of cool too. But I'm not. how often do I want the rewards without the suffering? How often do I want blessings without the sacrifice? How often do I want my way without having to give in to another's way? And specifically God's way. But once more, our Lord comes with a swift and decisive answer out of the book of Deuteronomy. Again, he responds, verse 10 says, Then Jesus said to them, Get out of here, Satan. And it wasn't a suggestion, it was a command. And he says, For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy again here. Another verse where the Israelites fail again. They're supposed to only worship God. How many times have we read that in Deuteronomy? How many times have we seen that in the Pentateuch? Worship the Lord your God. Have him first. He is the only God. No other gods before him, right? But what do they do? They worship Baal. They worship golden calves. They worship idols. They worship themselves. They worship other gods and lords where they should have been God's chosen people set apart. They fall into temptation over and over again a countless number of times. Till they're conquered as a people, they're sent out as exiles from the promised land. But they are never forgotten. God still kept his covenant promises even though he didn't need to. Even though they failed in their covenantal duties, he still kept his promises. The Israelites were restored to the land, and in the fullness of time, Messiah came. This Messiah faced all the temptations that the Israelites faced, but where they all failed, he passed every one. And this Messiah suffered. He chose to suffer. He didn't choose the way of sensation. He chose the way of suffering. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. What a comfort it must have been for Israel to see that the Messiah suffering, the pains and the sufferings that they suffered. What a comfort it is for us. Being anguished with all the same crises that tormented them and that devastated ourselves. He is with us. He is Emmanuel, it's not that Jesus replaces Israel as if they were simply failures and now he's going to do them one better. No, it's that Jesus stands with Israel, alongside of Israel, as is together with him. We now are looking at the mountainscape that he himself was able to pass the temptation, pass the test, and so that we all, with alongside him, can enter into the promised land. Jesus now knows how hard it is to enter into a new land. He knows how tough this is, and he's, he says he's, he's with you. When Satan tried to, to, tries to break the bound, when sin is too powerful, the devil is too persuasive, per, uh, persuasive, when it seems like a hopeless battle, Jesus says he is with you. We're at a new turning point. We've reached the shores of Canaan, revisited. This time we will win. This time we will become a blessing to all the nations as God promised to our ancestors, Abraham and Sarah. This time nothing will stop the onward, victorious march of our God who longs to be with us all and who in coming has declared his presence. I'm Emmanuel. And we're called to tell all the nations. Jesus was not tempted so that we would, have, we would view from afar his heroic, solitary strength. He was tempted so that we would feel ourselves becoming stronger through and with him. Jesus was not tempted so that we could admire him. He was tempted so that we together could see what it means to be admirable. He was not tempted so that we could be fit to cross the Jordan into the promised land. He was tempted so that we would be fit to conquer all the nations for the kingdom of God. He was not tempted so that we could put, our, we could put him under a microscope. He was tempted so that we could look at ourselves in the mirror, the mirror of God's eternal presence. 
He was not tempted so that we would think about everything he went through. He is tempted so that we would rethink everything we have ever been through, viewing it all now in the light of God's presence. My people, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, says the book of Hebrews. But we see Jesus who is tempted in every way just as we are, but without sin. He is Emmanuel, God with us. I got my people, I want you to understand this that he chose to enter into this place. He symbolized as he stood in place of Israel, he stood alongside Israel and says, I have accomplished what you failed to accomplish. Now his righteousness is our righteousness. We have a second chance of entering into the promised land. This time we will not fail because our high priest, our king, our, our, our Messiah, our prophet, Jesus did not fail. Do you see the confidence we have when we say that? I want you to understand this, that just Jesus being righteous, Jesus facing the temptations and not committing any of them, not failing, isn't just one of those feel-good stories of, see, Jesus is perfect. It's not just for us, like, see, Jesus battled temptation this way. No, it gives us confidence knowing that where, he, where Israelites have failed, we now have confidence entering into the promised land knowing that we kept our end of the covenant treaty. That we now can know going in that God who is faithful, God who is all-powerful, he will fulfill his promises. He will fulfill his work because we, with Christ's righteousness, have the confidence of that righteousness going in to conquering the land that he's called us to conquer. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? So it's not a sermon today that just says, hey, stop sinning and use scriptures to battle sin. It's a sermon today that says God is faithful. Christ is here. God is with us. And as we enter into the land that God calls us to enter into, our confidence is that Jesus has made us righteous. And our confidence is that he has done all, he's done and fulfilled all that we need to fulfill on this side of the covenant so that we have a right relationship with God. And nothing is powerful enough to separate that. My people, as we enter into this new year, as we enter into 2021, may we walk in confidence knowing that Jesus did not fail and he never will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, that as, as Jesus representing Israel stepped in, representing the, being the second Adam. All of mankind stepped into this place, into this our sinful estate, entered into facing these temptations. He never failed. God, he is God with us. And because of his work, because of your covenant faithfulness, because of your goodness, we have confidence knowing that you've called us to advance your kingdom, to conquer this land and enter into the promised land. So God, we go forth with that confidence. And we thank you that man does not live on bread alone, but by your very words. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Waypoint Church, I hope you have the elements ready for communion. And if you don't, please take this time to go get your elements ready. We're going to practice uh, the sacrament of communion together at the Lord's Supper as a family. And this is a family meal for those who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Who, as a part of a, a church membership, we invite you to the Lord's table. Now, this is a family meal that we partake in together. So as you get the, uh, the, the elements ready, we want you to remind you that this is the very body of Jesus. 
Now, understand this. This is so incredible. I love this. That this symbolizes the sustenance that he provides daily. As we partake in this meal together, we're saying, God, we trust you every day for our provision, for our sustenance, for our very needs. And as we drink, we celebrate the work of Jesus and the new covenant that he's provided for us. And as we drink together, we, we take into ourselves the very, very much so that the very righteousness that Christ has provided that is very much clothed upon us. As we do this, as we partake, as, as we enter into this time of Holy Communion together, we're reminded of the time that Jesus took the bread and broke it and gave it out to his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. And this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. Drink. And as we partake, as we eat and drink as a family, may we eat and drink his sustenance into us, this very means of grace he's given to us. So we invite you, Waypoint Church, wherever you're at, to partake in communion together with us. My people, I know it's so different. And I know so many of us were hoping in the year 2021 we would still, we'll be back together to partake in communion together. But can I tell you this? His spirit is still knitting our hearts together. His spirit is still at work uniting us. Hold, hold on to that truth. Ask Ask God how you can be moving in ways to continue to build our family up as he's called us to this local church body together. And even in our act of communion, as that unites us, may we physically now go forward and show this means of grace to others in our church community. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Holy Communion and for this means of grace that you've bestowed upon us. May we remember the work kind of your life, of how you faced temptation and didn't fail, how you fulfilled covenant promises, God, how you fulfilled and completed the law, <coughs> how you lived a life of love, how you showed what new creation and the new heavens and earth was going to look like, how you showed us who God is. And then how you died upon the cross as you offered yourself, as you were the lamb led to the slaughter, and that you are risen, reigning, and interceding for us. God, we thank you. We love you. And may the world know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.